Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. It is good to see you here today. My name is Tyler. Are you? We are pretty close here, Katie. That's all right. It's good to have a full house. Uh, really, really glad you're all here. Glad you're right there. Um, thank you all. Uh, good to be here. I, I got to just tell you this from the very get-go. I woke up this morning at um, 2.30 in the morning just wired and ready to go. I don't know if anyone else is, if it's the barometric pressure or whatever it is, but I'm coming down off the high. So if I get slow, just kind of clap or do something to motivate me again, but I am feeling the tiredness. I was just up, could not fall back asleep, uh, but I'm so happy to be here with you this morning. As I've said, my name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. Eddie mentioned our campus pastor, Gabe, is running a 100-mile ultramarathon in South Dakota. And so I thought you might like to get a little glimpse into his journey. Uh, here's Gabe at the outset of the race. So he's number 13 there, if you haven't met him before. Uh, and that's his lifelong friend, Thomas. So they're running uh, in memory of a dear mutual friend that they have. So this is at the, the outset of the race. And then I think we have a live picture of him now. Uh, and so he's, yeah. <laughs> Just had enough. Uh, so 90 miles, right? Is that man? Gosh, uh, that I don't even drive that far. Uh, so we we miss it. But all joking aside, uh, Gabe was keeping with his pace goals uh, the last time that I checked. Allie and the kids—they've had a blast in South Dakota. I know they did some sightseeing, and we're really excited to have Gabe back with us next week. Um, you know, if one of Gabe's greatest interests is running, uh, one of my greatest interests is theater. Uh, Gabe loves to jog and sweat. I love to sit, uh, be inspired, and entertained. And so uh, we saw a few moments ago a picture of Gabe doing one of his passions. Here's me uh, a few months ago at Waitress the Musical. Had great seats uh, with some dear friends in New York. I'll be back there in a little bit for Dear Evan Hansen that won the Tony for Best Musical. So seeing that with the original cast before they retire, uh, for those who care. But I love theater. And you should know that one of the great perks of my job is being able to be here during the week when no one else is around and use our fabulous sound system to listen to my favorite show tunes. <laughs> and so all summer we've had Les Mis and Miss Saigon and Disney's The Lion King in this space. I love musical theater. And in 1983, the legendary Broadway composer Jerry Herman wrote lyrics that have made an enduring impact on the theater community. And lyrics that I would say uh, poignantly capture an assumption that goes deep, deep, deep in our cultural understanding and the way that we view the world. Herman, he was working on a closing number to the first act of his musical, La Caja Fall, which went on to win the Tony. And if you know anything about theater, you need, a, you need a big number to close the first act. And so the song that he wrote for this particular place in the performance is titled, I Am What I Am. And it begins like this. The lyrics are, I am what I am. I am my own special creation. So come, hey, take a look. 
give me the hook or the ovation. Herman captures a sentiment that I think so many regard as true in our time, and the sentiment is this, uh, I've made me, I've made me, my life has been lived on my terms and my terms alone, I've created who I am, and I am what I am, I'm the author of my own story. And Herman's not alone in articulating this truth. The poet William Ernest Henley captured it this way. He says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And if you know kind of the great American standards, the the songbook of this country, you'll remember that Frank Sinatra sang it in his signature style. I faced it all and I stood tall and I did it my way, right? You've heard this idea before, church, the idea that each person has individually and autonomously exercised complete control over the way they are. They've decided who they want to be and who they are becoming. You've heard it said that people, they consciously, they make himself or herself into who they wish to be. I am what I am. I did it my way. I've made me. This is the mantra of our times. But what if this is wrong? What if we don't have as much control over who we are and what we think as we might suppose? What if we're not solo authors individually and autonomously shaping ourselves? What if we really aren't, at the end of the day, our own special creations? What if that's, what if that's wrong? You know, it's real commonplace to hear, and many do believe it, but some of our brightest and most reflective thinkers have begun to question and disagree with that assertion, with the assertion that people are are self-made. They say to the contrary, we're actually profoundly shaped by others to a degree that we'd likely rather not admit. One of the great thinkers who has kind of combated this idea, I am who I am, is, is the great philosopher Dallas Willard. And he challenges the notion that individuals create themselves. And he says this, he says, you have a spirit within you and it has been formed. It has taken on a specific character. You see, Willard insists that there's something inside you and inside me. There's something inside all of us, deep inside, that makes us tick. Something that motivates our actions and drives our desires and shapes the way that we interact with the world. And Willard, he, he believes that humans, they're, they're more than just their biology. We certainly are that. There's plenty that our biology dictates and determines. But there's something more. There's, there's something deeper, something that exercises great power over our habits and our behaviors. And Willard maintains that thing. It's, it's our spirit. He says, you have a spirit. And our spirit, Willard insists, they've, they've been formed. Indeed, he writes this. He says, spiritual formation is the process by which the human spirit, that thing in all of us, or the will, it's given definite form or character. It's a process that happens to everyone. The most despicable as well as the most admirable of persons have had a spiritual formation. I mean, everyone from Mother Teresa to Mussolini, according to Willard, has been spiritually They've been affected deeply at their core by certain ideas and certain experiences that have been communicated to them by others. And that thing within you and that thing within me that, that drives our behavior, it's not something we've created on our own, Willard says. It's something that's been shaped and formed by others. Willard says we be, each become a certain kind of person in the depths of our being, and we don't become that kind of person on our own. We have been shaped. Our spirits have been formed. 
And so this morning, we're coming to the beginning of a new sermon series. And this is like a back-to-school Sunday, right? I know a lot of teachers in our congregation have been back in the classroom. Think of this Sunday as like the syllabus day for a new series. We're kind of setting the overview for where we're going to be. This is the, the introduction of the book, and I promise it, it's going to get a lot better as we go along. But this morning, we're starting a new series, and the series is entitled A Story Worth Living. And it's a series intended to help us identify and explore those ideas and beliefs that have shaped us in significant ways. We want to be aware, if we all have been formed, we want to be aware of what's formed us. And so this morning, I'd like to begin by asking, how have you been formed? I mean, how have you been formed? What ideas, what experiences, what people have, have shaped you? Do you know? I mean, can, you, can you name them? What thinkers, what heroes, what books? what show tunes, uh, what ideas have shaped you as a person? How have you been formed? Because for the next seven weeks, we're going to be exploring together seven ideas and narratives that our teaching team believes have profoundly shaped and formed so many over the past few decades. And I think some of the ideas that we're going to dive into, you're going you're to recognize them instantly. You're going to say, oh yeah, I've known that, I've heard of that, and yes, here's how it's shaped me. And others, uh, they might take you by surprise. Perhaps you haven't really noticed that they've been at work forming and shaping you. They've been maybe doing their work in the background without a conscious awareness. But our prayer is that this series will give our whole church a better understanding of those forces and ideas and experiences that have shaped us spiritually, that have shaped us down to the core. And our goal is that when it's all said and done, we'll be able as a church, better able, to ask if the story we are living is a story worth living. Kind of when all these influences have come in, if, hey, if what the result of that is the story we are living, is that one worth living? That's our goal in these next seven weeks. We want folks to be able to judge well if the narratives and ideas that have shaped them are narratives and ideas worth, continuing, worth continual embrace or worth being resisted. And so one more housekeeping note, just like class, as we begin this morning, uh, we imagine that the topics we'll cover over these next few weeks might generate some questions. And we love questions at this church. And so to help facilitate questions, we've actually set up a texting number uh, for this series. So there it is. You can go ahead and put that in your phones now. Uh, we'll be walking through the book of Genesis. And so that book itself has so many questions. And then again, the cultural themes and ideas we'll be doing. There's a lot of stuff that could come into mind from that. And so we're going to give this new thing a shot. You can text in questions to that number. And we'll be uh, appearing on Mondays on Facebook Live to answer those questions. Uh, and I got to be honest, some of us are more excited about this idea than others. I love being live, uh, but we'll see the rest of the staff. We'll all, we'll all be there on Mondays. It'll be a little later tomorrow uh, in light of the eclipse. But every week after that, Mondays at 3.15, we'll be live and engaging those questions. So please, if things pop up into your mind today or as you go home or as you're thinking about, man, this series or the book of Genesis, really anything like that, we want to be more dialogical in this series. We think it'll be helpful for folks as we consider these foundations assumptions that have formed us. So please feel free to text in any questions that you have along the way. Uh, we'd love to start that conversation. Is that cool? All right. Well, I am ready to dive into this morning's text. So if you haven't already, would you open your Bibles to Genesis 1? It is literally on page 1 of our community Bible, so it's super easy to find. Genesis 1. 
And as you're turning there, I want to let you know that this book of Genesis, uh, the reason it makes great sense for us to be studying for this particular sermon series is the fact that Genesis was written actually by Moses to challenge some of the dominant cultural narratives and assumptions at his time. So when this book was originally written, Moses was doing similar work to what we're hoping to do today. Uh, Did you know that about Genesis? It was intended to challenge the ideas and assumptions that existed about the world that were maintained by other communities and tribes around the Israelites. Uh, Specifically, Moses wanted to challenge those who believed that our world was controlled by gods or maybe a god, but some, some kind of pantheon of gods, this group of gods that maybe made humans, maybe didn't, maybe had some power, maybe not all the power, but had some kind of godlike role, but then there were people who could maybe manipulate them and turn and get them to do what they wanted. So this idea, sort of this grand polytheistic, there's multiple gods, you can please one, get another, woo them, they'll be mad at you there. He wanted to challenge that idea, which was so prevalent in the world in which he lived. And Moses, this type of thinking, it was largely unchallenged in his day, but Moses had met God in the burning bush. And he was convinced deep down that the popular assumptions about God or the gods, that they were incorrect and untrue. And so at the prompting of the Holy Spirit, he sat down to record what had been passed down to him in Jewish tradition about the beginning of the world. And that's what we have here in Genesis. He put what he knew about God into writing, and he opened the account, the book of Genesis, and our whole Bible by extension by saying this, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, These 10 English words that come from seven Hebrew words, they make a gargantuan claim about the reality, about design, about the world in which we live, and the power that created it. Moses launches his book and launches our whole Bible by saying, in the beginning, God, in the beginning when there was nothing, no one, no day, no night, no water, sky, or land, nothing. In the beginning, Moses says, God was. In the beginning, God. Now, notice Moses says God, a singular word, not God's plural. And this would have stood out to ancient readers. And he says, hey, before anything came into being, Before this world as we know it came into existence, before all that, in the beginning, there was God. Now, you need to know this verse, Genesis 1-1, it functions as kind of like a a subtitle or a banner headline in the original Hebrew text. Because you got to remember, the initial audience for this text, they were hearing the book read, right? Literacy wasn't kind of the same way, and this was something that would be read orally in kind of a gathered assembly like this. And so it was common to put your big idea right up front, you know, like you learned in high school English, lead with your big idea. And so this word here, in the beginning, God, this phrase, this is Moses saying, here's what it's all about. That in the beginning, before there was anything else, God was. This is the main idea that I'm trying to communicate. And then he starts to spell that out in more detail. The narrative begins to unfold in verse 2 when he writes that the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I want to be clear, this is one of those verses that thoughtful people uh, kind of debate and determine what precisely this means as it relates to human history. This would be a great question to text in. How do you view Genesis 1-2? But for our purposes this morning, here's what we need to know. Moses is saying, there was a time before time as we know it where there was no order to anything, where all there was was formlessness, emptiness, void. 
Then God spoke, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and he called the darkness night, and there was evening and morning the first day. In the Genesis account, Moses says God exists before all else, and then God makes all that there is. And God doesn't do it like with a lot of effort. It doesn't take a lot of work. He simply speaks it into being. God says, let there be light, and there was light. And God sees that what he's made is good. He calls the light good. He says the seas and the land are good. The plants and the fruit trees are good. The sun and the moon are good. The fish and the birds, the cattle and the mammals. I mean, all of it, God's saying, is kind of this book unfolds in a, in a rhythm. I mean, you can catch it as you read the whole thing, right? There was evening and morning the first day, evening and morning the second day. Good, 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 good. God sees all that he's made and he says it's good. And then he gets to human beings at the very end kind of the peak of his creation. And in Genesis 1.31, he says, hey, all of this, when I look at it now with humans and their place in this creation, it's very good. It's orderly. It's intentional. It's beautiful. It's my masterpiece. This is how the Bible begins. The Genesis account and our entire scriptures, they begin with the bold claim that there is a God that he exists before all else, and that this God made all that there is, and that he did so effortlessly and masterfully. And church, that is a, a huge claim. And it's a claim that challenges many popular cultural assumptions of our time. And really many assumptions, right? This is kind of different from something we normally hear, but our team this week we, we thought of one assumption in particular, one kind of cultural narrative, one set of ideas that we think this depiction of the origin of human life and of who God is, it stands in, in bold contrast against. There's one assumption, it's quite pervasive, and it's an idea that was articulated most memorably in 2011 by the Grammy-winning rapper Drake. Uh, in his hit song, The Motto, which has sold more than three million copies, Uh, Drake introduced a slogan that's become a cultural phenomenon. You've probably heard it before. He said, uh, you only live once. That's the motto, YOLO. And we bout it every day, every day, every day. (laughs) That's why I'm not a rapper. Uh, Leave that to someone else. But with that short lyric, Drake (laughs) introduced the whole world to YOLO, right? You only live once, the motto, and it's made a remarkable cultural impact. It's been graffitied on walls. It's a popular Twitter hashtag. Uh, Some on the internet claim that it's a tattoo that Zac Efron got, although that's in uh, dispute. But I think, yeah, there it is. Hi, Zac. You only live once, YOLO. It's a pithy idea. And to be clear, in one sense, Drake is absolutely right. I mean, in one sense, human life is a gift, and it's precious, and it's short, and it can fly by, and we don't get a do-over. But in another sense, this phrase carries a set of ideas It suggests some things about the world and the way the world works that stands in stark contrast to the Genesis account that we just engaged. Because YOLO is used most commonly, and in fact, it's used by Drake in his song, The Motto, to make a claim that, hey, this life is all there is, so you better live it up. 
time is short, so you need to make the most of it. It makes the claim that this physical, natural life, that the material existence that we inhabit, this is, this is all there is, this is it, and it's passing by, and you only get to do it once. So the logic goes, you might as well enjoy it while you can. You might as well pursue all the pleasure you can while you can. I mean, take a risk. Do something stupid. Who cares? YOLO, right? You only live once. If you don't go after it now, if you don't go for it today, you'll miss out. You'll sell yourself short. You'll wind up experiencing less than you could have. So, so be a little less cautious. Be a little less stuffy. YOLO, YOLO, come on, do it. This is all there is. No day but today. You've heard this, right? But do you now see some of the faith assumptions and the philosophy that underlies the YOLO slogan? Do you now see how this little phrase stands for a large set of ideas that profoundly shapes us in these modern times? I mean, can you see what's being implied about the world and humans' roles in it? Let me help with that process. Four years before Drake brought YOLO to the masses, a distinguished professor and philosopher, uh, Charles Taylor, published a masterful analysis of the modern world. It's called A Secular Age. And this thing is a thick book. It would look great on your bookshelf, but about 100 pages in, you're going to want to give up. Uh, <laughs> but in this book, Taylor talks about what he calls an imminent frame. And he says that modern people, we look through life through this imminent frame. We're so preoccupied on the, the here and now. We look primarily, if not exclusively, at the material realities of our lives. And that shapes how we live in the world, how we think about the world, how we respond to those around us. And Taylor notes that this is a profound shift in human society. He says this is something that's really recent, this imminent frame. He notes that for millennia, human beings were aware that there might be something out there, right? They might have disagreed on what precisely it was, but the idea of a God or another world or something to which we're accountable, he's like, that, that was more commonplace. And now, Taylor says, in the modern world, that's been replaced. And people have an imminent frame. This, this world is all there is. This material existence is all that matters. This is, this is what reality is. And he notes that this is a, a huge shift in the history of ideas, a, a massive difference. And I think he's right. I mean, what he describes, it, it fits my experience. When I open best-selling books, when I engage friends in conversation, when I peer into my own thoughts, I, I think that modern people, we don't automatically assume that God is present, that God is around that God has any kind of authority, that God made anything, that he's something or someone who's real and who matters. I see more and more confidence in what's material and experiential. I see less and less confidence in God. And that's what Taylor's saying. That's what YOLO is capturing in a clever way. That's, that's what's happening in our world, in our neighborhood, in our cities. Right? Do you realize, church, that this this assumption about the way things is, it has implications. It is shaping the way we live. We are spiritually shaped. And these ideas that this world is all there is and that there may or may not be a God and who cares anyway because my time here is short, I've got to live it up, that this, this has shaping power on the parts deepest in us, on our, on our spirits. We live in the world of YOLO, in the world of here and now. And this stands in stark contrast to the world presented by Moses in Genesis 1, doesn't it? I mean, our world and our worldviews are quite different than the world and worldviews that open up 
the scriptures. In the beginning, God. It's a far cry from YOLO. Before and underneath and behind it all, God is a big step from this world is all there is. And so this morning, like I said, we're taking our first step into this series. But as we do, we've got to ask ourselves this question. uh, Is it YOLO or is it ITBG? In the beginning, God, right? Is it you only live once or is it in the beginning, God? And friends, this is a huge question. And it's our question at the outset of this series. Uh, Is it YOLO or is it God? Which slogan is shaping our lives? Which slogan do we want to shape our lives? What set of ideas should be forming us spiritually? Because we are being formed. We each have become and are becoming someone based on the ideas that we're embracing, based on what's presented to those around us. We are influenced by others. So what is shaping you? And what is shaping us as a church? Is it YOLO or is it in the beginning God? My guess is that a good number of us, if we're honest, are beginning to realize that the way we lead our lives has been a little more shaped by YOLO and a little less shaped by Scripture. We might be beginning to see, even in this moment, that we've been more attuned and responsive to the idea that life is short, so live it up, than we have been to the reality that there's a God who existed before everything, who made everything, who made it good, and knows what human flourishing looks like. And perhaps we might be seeing it in the way that we spend our money, right? Or in the things that we daydream about. Maybe we realize, hey, I'm really quick to splurge, to say yes to another, you know, meal out or another new pair of shoes rather than keeping my commitments to generosity, right? YOLO. Or maybe we see, hey, I I know that I usually get real excited about the idea of serving, but then I never seem to make space for it in my calendar. There's just something else that becomes so pressing, right? YOLO. We know what God has said about honesty and integrity and kindness, but hey, when it gets down to it in the workplace, those are just really difficult to live out sometimes. We know that we more or less enjoy church on Sunday. It's fun to be around here, and they've got scones, but hey, I never really think (laughs) about spiritual realities or my life or my relationship with the Lord the rest of the week. And I think if many of us are honest, church, our thoughts and opinions are shaped a little bit more by some ideas outside the world, these ideas that we've summarized under the banner YOLO, than the ideas that appear in the first pages of Scripture. I mean, who is shaping you spiritually, church? You owe it to yourself to know the answer to that question. Is it cultural narratives that say, this is it, life here and now, this is all there is? Or is it a biblical story of a God who exists outside time and has a plan for the people he's made inside time? What is, what is shaping you, church? Because you see, over the next few weeks, we're going to be learning more and more about the biblical narrative, the story of Scripture. And my hope is that as we engage the rest of the text of Genesis and as we unpack all the implications of this text, we're going to see that the story of Scripture is better and truer and more beautiful than all the other narratives that compete with it for our attention and for our hearts. But in the few moments that remain for us today, I want us to think together about how we might take a first step this week before we dive into all the other material, how we might take a first step this week to reshape our hearts, to do a little spiritual formation work, to see if it's like, oh man, I wish I could live more accordance with the the spiritual narrative. I mean, how exactly does that happen? That feels like a great way for us to take a first step this week. 
think about how does that formation happen? How can we live more as people that are in tune with this scriptural narrative instead of with this broad cultural narrative of YOLO? And so I've got one simple piece of advice for this coming week. Again, we've got a full series ahead, but a full series ahead. But this week, what can we do this week to begin the spiritual reformation process of our hearts? Well, here's here's a little piece of advice. If you're interested in deepening your roots in the biblical story. I'd like to suggest that this week you wake every morning and commit to living every day as if there is a God. Right? This week, live as if there is a God. I know it sounds so simple, doesn't it? And I know many of us in this room have said, Tyler, but I've already committed. Like, I think there is a God. Yes, but the question is, are we living every day as if there is a God? Because what would that mean for us? I mean, think about it. Maybe before making big decisions this week, we would pause and ask ourselves, hey, if there is a God who made it all and that God has the power that Genesis 1 suggests that he has, uh, what would that God think about what I'm about to do? I mean, would I still send this email? Would I still send this text? Would I still make these plans? Would I still keep that commitment? Would I go to this event? Would I ignore that phone call? Would my morning routine look differently? Would what I do before I go to bed look differently? I mean, church, the truth that we're going to engage this entire series is that you have been and are being spiritually formed. There's forces and ideas and experiences in our world that are shaping you at the deepest levels of your heart. And I'm convinced that the God of Scripture, the God who made this all, the God who brought our whole world into being, that He knows the best way for us to be formed. And that He has a, a good plan for us in the same way that He made the world good. He wants what's best for us in that good world that He's made. And so I'm inviting you to join me in this journey over the next few weeks to think about, hey, how could I be formed more into the image that that God has designed. And I think it starts this week by living each day as if there is a God, by saying, hey, if what this book says is true, if there's a God that's made it all, how does that change what I'm doing today and tomorrow and the next day? And it's a small step, but it's the beginning of this journey that I think we're about to take together. So can I pray for us as we get ready for that this week? Oh, Lord, we... Uh, Gosh, we are so easily shaped by what happens around us. And you've made us that way, Lord. You want to shape us. And so we ask that as we dive into this next series, Lord, and as we think about all the different forces and ideas and experiences that shape us in this world, may we become people that are drawn and attracted to your story. May you give us the eyes to see that it is the way to live, that it is a good and bountiful life. May we acknowledge you as the one who's created life and knows how it's lived best. And Lord, May you give us the courage to examine the ways that we've been shaped, to think thoughtfully about what influences have been in our lives, and Lord, to take steps of faith towards new realities and away from bad realities, Lord, if that's what you have for us. I pray that you'd give us that courage this week as we seek to live every day as if you are there, Lord, and we trust that you are and that you love us greatly. So it's in your powerful name that we pray. Amen.